0: Before we dismiss our children, uh, let me say a word of welcome. It's good to have you at Freedom today, and uh, really do mean that. Uh, I look around this place on Sunday mornings, and my heart's just always filled with such a sense of gratitude that I get to belong to this family, and that we get to do life together, that we get to share, not just in times of worship together, but to share in the joys and in the difficulty and in serving the Lord. It's fun to get to do that with you. It's also a joy to welcome in those of you who are joining us online. Uh, every Sunday, there are some who can't be here, and it's cool that we get to, to still share together by you joining us through Freedom Online, so it's good to have you be aboard. Uh, last Sunday, we uh, took a moment to say thanks and to uh, honor uh, Deborah, uh, who has served us so well these last four years. Uh, In our children's ministry and when she told me about three months ago that she was going to be stepping out of that role, boy, we immediately began to pray because we knew that was going to leave some big shoes uh, to be filled. And as we have prayed, we just feel like God has given a real clear answer. About who's supposed to step into that role. And so I want to take a moment to introduce to you our new children's pastor. Uh, The Lord just recently, in the last several months, brought a new young family into our church. And I'm going to hope, would you mind to come? And yeah, I, I, I know putting you on the spot too, but would you join Aaron? Hope and Aaron Quinn, would you all give a warm freedom welcome to these guys? And Beckham, who is the newest member of their tribe, we are thrilled to have these guys on board. Um, Aaron uh, actually is uh, trained in theology. He has his uh, undergrad degree in theology. These guys have done children's ministry in Oklahoma and in San Diego and just recently have moved here, and we are thrilled to be adding Aaron to the staff and these guys to our staff family. And I wanted you to meet them as uh, they're stepping into this role and just to give you all an opportunity to greet the church and say anything you want to say. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mark. We're we're excited, and we're going to get to know each and every one of you more, uh, I, I assume. But, uh, yeah, we moved here six months ago from San Diego because we were having this little guy. My wife's born and raised from Fairhope, Alabama. So we've been here for about six months. We love Freedom Church and and what Mark and and the staff have done here. So very excited. Big shoes to fill following Deborah's place, but looking forward to it. Great. Well, we are glad to have you guys here. They are actually living in Lee and Cindy's compound in in the barn, which is so cool that uh, God just has created this place that has just become a ministry site, and uh, so neat how God has networked all that together. The ministry that's happening there and here, and we just say welcome aboard, glad to have Thank you. you guys. And now, with that said, our children in the second through the sixth grade can bamoose over to uh, Sweet C for the service station and for their teaching time. Well, uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to offer some uh, silliness for uh, no spiritual value whatsoever, but just uh, to set the stage today. Jackie and I love to go uh, estate sailing. Not because we need more junk, but just because it's fun. So we just like to buy other people's junk and and then get rid of our junk and uh, replace it. And I love finding books. And I found an an old book of quotes this weekend that I have had a fun time pouring through. And... uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I just jotted down eight of them that, uh, that just struck my funny bones. So take no offense at these. These have no spiritual value. I just thought they'd be fun to start the day with. So eight random thoughts from my, uh, my random brain. The first one is this. The good Lord never gives you more than you can handle unless you die of something. Yeah, think about that one. Uh, Charles Schultz, who did the Peanuts strips, said, I have a new philosophy. I'm only going to dread one day at a time. I won't even uh, credit the author on this one, but he said, uh, Paying alimony is like buying oats for a dead horse. (laughs) Some would appreciate that more than others. Helen Hayes, at age 83, said, The hardest years in life are those between 10 and 70. That's encouraging. St. Augustine, the the St. Augustine, the church father, uh, is credited with this prayer. "O Lord, help me be pure. But not yet. (laughs) J.D. Salinger said, I'm kind of a paranoiac in reverse. I suspect people of plotting to make me happy. (laughs) Happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another state. (laughs) And the last one. The trouble with loving is that pets don't last long enough and people last too long. For all the pet lovers in the room. Well, we are uh, we are on Romans chapter six, and let me just say, uh, if maybe you've been out for the past uh, few weeks as we have uh, been diving into the book of Romans in this uh, current series. Romans is the deep end of the pool in the New Testament. It is the the weightiest theology in the New Testament, and and I will tell you, I'm just being honest. I wrestled for a long time with uh, teaching Romans. I love this book. But when I preach, I really try and work at making sure that what I preach is very easy to understand and very straightforward to apply. I had somebody tell me a long time ago when I was preaching, he was a guest, and he said, Now I want you to know, if I'm going to come to church here... I better be able to apply what you preached by the time I get to my car when I'm leaving. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a pretty tough standard. But I get what he was saying. You know, it needs to be stuff that's practical and meaningful. And so I always try and teach that way. And the challenge of Romans is that it really has a lot of the weighty truths of the faith. And we live in a time where pastors honestly are, are sort of trained to do, you know, sermons that are like Skittles. It needs to be bite-sized pieces that are you know, yummy and just go down easily. And this isn't Skittles preaching. Romans is just not that kind of stuff. It is practical. What we'll talk about today is intensely practical, but you've got to be willing to engage. And I, just, I think we need to tackle a passage like today and a book like the book of Romans with some understanding that, hey, it's going to require me to think about this. You know, I, honestly... You're probably going to get most of, of what I'm going to say today, and and it click. But part of what I'll share with you today, unless you're a whole lot smarter than, than I am, it's going to require some some time to really chew on portions of this, because I'm telling you some of what I'll share today I've spent years wrestling with. What do I do with that, and how do I live that out? And so I'm just saying... As a disclaimer on the front end, it's okay for us to take hold of passages that are about the really significant truths of the faith that aren't just skill-sized bites that we just go, oh, that was nice and now I just go on with my life and never have to think about it again. Would you agree that our faith is worth wrestling with and having to think about and that not everything is easy? And so today's going to be one of those passages, Romans chapter 6. Now, I'm going to say just very quickly as a setup to this, if you were here last week, uh, you know that that we've touched on how in in Romans 5, Paul just does this neat job of tackling the three different sources of problems that we have. You know, pain and regret from the past, pressure in the the present, and fear and and worry about the future, And, and he tackled all three in chapter 5. If you weren't here last week, I don't often say this, but it's worth going back and listening to last week because it is such a a relevant message for us and it's a setup for today because it's so much about how our justification paves the way for all of that. And we said last week that it's such great news to find out not only are we forgiven for all the stuff in the past, but we're justified. It means not only will we not be punished for it, but God has erased the slate. Your junk and my junk is never going to be remembered again. God's never going to bring it up again. He doesn't think about it again in relation to you. So justification has done that for our sins, plural. And we all together can say, thank you. So glad God will never remember or dredge those things back up. That's great news. But when we get to chapter 6, it's like Paul shifts gears and goes, okay, now that we've got the issue of all of your past junk, all of your past failures... Taken care of, now we've got to deal with the other half of the problem. And that's the problem of sin. Not sins, plural, the principle of sin. There's this awful thing that that sets in when we realize at some point along the way, I've really got two problems. The one problem is, I've messed up a lot. I've done a lot of things that I'm ashamed of, and I've failed to do things that I should have done. There are so many sins that I've committed, and it is wonderful news to know that Jesus has dealt with all of that. And initially, when we get saved, we have that, oh, thank goodness, when we realize that that's been dealt with. But then at some point, we realize, oh, no, I've got a second problem. And it's not all the stuff that I've done in the past. The problem is the issue of sin. In the present, the principle of sin, my own sinfulness, it's not just that I've done stuff that's messed up. I've got the problem that I'm messed up. I still choose the wrong things. There's still a part of me that wants to do things that I know dishonor God. And think about how many different ways that's packaged with different ones of us. Just the issue of our sinfulness. And I don't just mean the sort of random stuff that along the way that's not what you would do on an everyday basis. I mean the stuff that's been crippling for you spiritually. You know, we, there are certain things that are easy for us to pick on. And, and in church, you know, we, we could pick on drinking or smoking or taking pills or, you know, doing pot or, you know, churches love to hop on sexual sin or, or, um, same sex attraction and those kinds of issues. And all of those are very real issues. Absolutely. If that's something that you struggle with, that's, that's just like, A huge weight on your shoulders, spiritually, coping with those things. But let's don't be naive enough to think that those are the only kinds of ways that ongoing sins are packaged. It's not just those kinds of addictions and struggles. I mean, sometimes it's just as big a struggle to deal with a heart that just can't forgive. And now that's turned into bitterness and all of the stuff that comes out of that. It's so hard to deal with a critical spirit. And you, when you begin to see that for what it is, you hate it. You hate that you're critical of other people and of, of everything all the time, and yet you can't make it go away. When you realize that you've got a gossips mind and tongue, or that you're a slanderer and... This just keeps coming out of you, and the more you recognize it, the more you hate it, and you can't seem to shut it off. Or maybe it's not what comes out of your mouth. Maybe it's what goes into your mouth, and you realize that gluttony, gluttony's a real issue. That gluttony's a real sin, and that it's a controlling issue in your life. We could just go on and on. There are all kinds of of sin issues that become... Ongoing struggles for us. I mean, we, we live in a day and time where one that's so pervasive, particularly among men, but now it's, it's growing big time among women, is a, you know a sin of the flesh where pornography and all the stuff that gets attached to that becomes an ongoing thing. The bottom line is this. Whatever form it takes for every one of us, there are besetting sins that remind us of our inner sinfulness. That I need more than just forgiveness from the past. I need deliverance from what I am. Who I am for this drive that's in me. And that's what Paul is tackling in this passage in Romans 6. Now, he actually, in the book of Romans, you have to bear in mind, Paul had not to this point ever been to Rome. And yet he has the burden of reaching, and now some people have already been reached, discipling people that he's never met. And so in some of his writing, he actually does a little shadow boxing. He, he's not only going to teach truth, but he's going to do it in such a way as if there's some invisible person out there who's responding and asking questions. And so he's actually doing some sort of some back and forth with this person out there because he's, he's done this long enough. He knows the questions that are going to arise, and so he's trying to address that. So here's the question that Paul is tackling as we begin reading today. For the person who... Realizes, okay, all of my sins have been forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for me, and that, that covers sin, but oh my goodness, now I realize I have the principle of sin at work in me, and that's a real problem. I continue to sin. What do I do about that? Well, maybe I can just not worry about that. If the blood of Jesus is enough to cover all sins, and He's already done that, then it shouldn't really matter how I live, should it? I mean, my... Continuing to sin just becomes an opportunity for God to demonstrate how great His grace is and just how sufficient the blood of Jesus is. So maybe we should just live however we want to live and be happy and not worry about sin and everything will just be okay. Doesn't that sound good? And that's the mindset that Paul is addressing when he begins in Romans 6 by saying, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I used to read that and think that this was just speaking about the future resurrection after we physically die, but he's not. He's talking about what we get to experience now through Jesus' death and his resurrection. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's the good news that Paul's bringing up. You've been forgiven of your sin, and yet you find you're still a slave to sin. But he's saying, I'm going to tell you how you can be free so that you're no longer a slave to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives... He lives to God. Okay, in the first ten verses, he's given us kind of the theology, almost the theoretical part. Now, for the remainder of the passage, he's going to get down to, so what do you do with that? Verse 11, "...in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires, and do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master." Because you are not under law, but under grace. There's a simple little thought that just doesn't immediately make sense to me when you first read it. That sin will no longer be your master because you're not under the law, you're under grace. On the surface of that, it would seem like, how's that any help? Doesn't that leave us just that much more free to sin? But he's making this wonderful point. Paul's been trying to get across to people, the law, the rules will never keep you from sin. They'll just show you how sinful you are. Amen? And he said, you've been set free from the law. You're under grace so that now you can be free from sin. How does being under grace make you free from sin? It's really easy to understand. I'm married to Jackie, and I'm faithful to Jackie. I don't cheat on her in big or small ways. That doesn't mean not only do I not sleep with other women, it means I don't do even the little things that would even hint toward an inappropriate affection, attraction, interest in other women. And the reason that that is true is not because we have a rule book for marriage that says you can't have sex with other women, you can't talk to other women, you can't go out to dinner with other women. It has nothing to do with a rule book or law. It's all about one simple thing. Jackie loves me. She loves me in a way that nobody else loves me. And I am deeply in love with her. And that alone compels me to not look at another woman. To have no interest in another woman. You see, that's a grace relationship that's based on love that frees me up to do the right thing. And it has nothing to do with rules. And that's what Paul's talking about. The grace of God is about the love of God. God pouring out on us everything that we need, showering us with mercy and favor. And he says, that's the thing that frees you from sin, not the law. That's good news, isn't it? All right, let's read on. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. And you've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. And I know that's an analogy that we hate. We hate the slavery as a comparison for us, but we're going to back up to that and make much more sense out of that in a way that's not offensive. Verse nineteen. I put this in human terms, because you were weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefits did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin... And have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap. Leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's a mouthful. That is. That's a lot. But I'm going to. To show you today that there are really four words that are the key to understanding this chapter. And more importantly, these four words become the key really to getting free from just the besetting sins that hold on to us. Four words that are are really the heart of of how you get set free from controlling sin. I've entitled the message, Dying to Live Free. And when you've read this chapter, that makes a lot more sense. Because death is the only way that you ever get to live free from sin. The four words that you'll see that are, that are most prominent in this passage are the ones that you've got spelled out in your outline. And they begin, first of all, with the word know. Not N-O, but know, K-N-O-W. To, to know something. To, to grasp it in your mind with clarity and certainty. Someone has said, Christian living absolutely it depends on Christian learning the corollary to that would be if Satan can keep you ignorant he can keep you impotent wouldn't you agree with that and he's really good at that by the way we do we live in a time where i don 't know how we got here but modern Christianity has been so dumbed down that, that it really is where it's just it's sort of embarrassing how we're training Preachers that you need to preach so that the audience can stay dialed in. And I'm just not going to buy into that now or ever. And I realize some people aren't going to come here because they'd rather have the lollipop sermon. They want something that's going to be short and sweet. Give me a devotional thought and send me out the door. Jesus didn't package truth that way. Paul didn't package truth that way. When we're here, we're going to learn something and we're going to seek to grow in our relationship with the Lord, but in our knowledge of God, who He is, and what He's doing in the world. And that's something that we do not just when we're together. If you're going to experience real growth and real freedom in your life, there is a, a piece of that where you've got to be growing in what you know. Over and over you hear Paul referencing back to what you've got to know as we open the chapter. He says, for surely you Know that when you were baptized into union with Christ, we were baptized into union with His death. And we know that our old being has been put to death with Christ on the cross in order that the power of the sinful self might be destroyed so that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. God wants you to no longer be a slave to sin. Isn't that good news? You know, I I think we ought to just declare that today, that I am no longer a slave to sin. Would you say that? I am no longer a slave to sin. Let's try that again with a little heart. I am no longer a slave to sin. Well, how can that be? Because based on what I've seen in the mirror, and based on what I've seen of just watching my family, we still struggle with sin. How is it you get to no longer be a slave to sin? There's only one way. You got to die. You've got to die. God's only had one way of dealing with sinfulness, and it is through death. Even God has not been successful in reforming sinners. How's that for one to chew on? God himself doesn't succeed in reforming sinners. I'll tell you what God does. He kills sinners, and he raises new people in the image of his son, Jesus. And he lets them share the same body. That's what he does. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. He said, you've got to know this. You've got to let this sink in because we're born thinking that the way that you get to be more like Jesus is you try harder. You go to church more. You hang out with Christians more. You do Christian stuff. You say your Hail Marys. You you pray the Our Fathers. Whatever your list of stuff is, that's going to get you there. No, it's not. Paul said, this is the key to being free from sin you got to die. And the good news is... If you're in Christ... You've already died. You've got to understand... That you died with Jesus. Now I know when we first hear this... It's kind of like... Alright, are we just playing word games here? Because I feel very much alive. And what's this thing about being in Jesus... And dying with Christ? You know, when you got saved... The scripture says you got born again. Now think about what happened when you got born for the first time. Think about how much your world changed. You went from essentially a a watery world inside your mom where you had never taken a breath to where you were birthed out into the world where you suddenly were introduced to the atmosphere. Now let me ask you, when you came out into this world, you were suddenly into the ocean of air. Were you in the air or was the air in you? Which one was it? It was both. You don't live without both, do you? And and if you don't immediately do that, what's the doctor do? Whack! Puts a little tap on the fanny to get you to take in some air. You're in the air and the air is in you. Well, I want to tell you, when you got born again spiritually, you didn't get placed into the atmosphere, you got placed in Jesus. And at that point, I I know we, we tend to kind of go, I thought I asked Jesus into me. This is the cell phone call day. Everybody, just go ahead and pull them out and turn them off, or call. You know, call and tell them I said, "Hey, when you get placed in Christ, yes, you asked Jesus to come live inside you." And he did, but you were also placed inside him. Just like you're, you're out here and the air is around you, but the air is in you. You're in the atmosphere and the atmosphere is in you. When you got born again, you were placed in Jesus. And Jesus was placed in you. So here's what that means. Here's why that matters. You were placed in Jesus, so you're in his family. You're like a descendant of Jesus. And so his story, his history, is your history. In much the same way that we could say, you were in your, you know, pick an ancestor. You were in your great-great-grandfather. You were. Part of your DNA and your history is tied to any of your great-great-grandparents, wasn't it? In the sense that... What would happen if somebody invented a time machine and we could travel back in time a hundred years and if we could kill your great-great-grandfather when he's four years old, what happens to you? You're gone. Why? Because if your great-great-grandfather died when he was four years old, then that means your great-grandfather. Somebody died, never was born, and your grandparent was never born, and your parent was never born, and you were never born. Why? Because you were in them throughout their lives. Their history is your history because you were in them. If they died young, you're never born. Well, when you were placed in Christ, an amazing... Mis- Really mysterious thing happened. You're placed in Christ so that his whole story is your story. So that when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. And when Jesus was raised to new life, you were raised with him. And Paul said, this makes all the difference. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was not just accepting the punishment that your sin deserved. Here's one for you to go home and chew on. Jesus did not just bear your and my sins on the cross. He didn't just bear the things that we had done. He also bore our sinfulness. Now I want you to think about what a difference there is between those two things. It's one thing to say, okay, give me the weight of the punishment that they deserve for what they've done. That's horrible to think about. That's one thing. But it is far more horrific to consider that you would in that moment have the capacity to take on the sinfulness of humanity. Not just the things that we had done, but our actual sinfulness. The wickedness of our hearts. The instinct within us to do everything that dishonors God. The scripture says Jesus became sin. He became, in that moment of time, Utterly sinful on our behalf. You ever think about that half of the deal? I mean, here's a really weird thought in that. If Jesus had not died on the cross and had just gone on living, he now, because of what was dumped on him in that moment, had taken on the sinfulness of humanity. All sinfulness. That's a bizarre thought, To think, what the rest of his life would have looked like had he not died on the cross. Because you see, God only has one way of dealing with sinfulness and with sin. You have to kill it. Paul talks about it here. Jesus gets set free from that sinfulness that he briefly bore by being killed and then raised to a new life. And it says sin no longer had power in him. What a weird thought to consider that very briefly sin had power in Jesus' life on the cross. It was our sin and sinfulness laid on him. This is really good news. It's just a deep thought getting there. Not only can my sins be forgiven, but my sinfulness can be broken because Jesus didn't just bear the punishment for my sin. He bore my sinfulness on the cross. That old me died with Jesus. And when Jesus was raised with a new life, Paul said, you've also got to know that you were raised with him. And you have resurrection life now. That's no longer bound to sin. And for starters, you've got to know and understand this. Alright? Having begun to grasp that. That it's our union with Christ that makes all the difference. That's very different from thinking, I've got to do all this work to, to get free from sin. No, it's actually only my union with Christ that ever begins to free me from sin. It's, it's the John 15 kind of stuff where Jesus is saying, you've got to learn to abide in me. It's, that's all about staying vitally connected, the, the branches and the vine, abiding in, vitally connected with. In that relationship, we begin to experience freedom from besetting sin. Now, now that we know this, what do we do with it? Three words remain. The next key word is the word reckon. That's a good southern term, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon it is. We use that all the time, don't we? Y'all want to go to Longhorns for lunch when church is over? I reckon so. What does reckon mean? Well, in, in our good southern English usage, it means I suppose so. Maybe so. Sounds pretty good to me. I reckon so. That is not at all what it means in the Greek. This is... A vitally important term in the New Testament. It's used 41 times in the New Testament. And 19 of those are in the book of Romans. You won't get Romans if you don't know something of what it means to reckon. And it's not how we use it. When Paul talks about reckoning, he means to put it to your account. To make the deposit. In simpler terms... To believe that what God says in His Word is really true in your life, and to then act on it, to not just believe that it's so, to reckon it so, to act on what you you know to be the case. Verse eleven, he says, "Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord." He has started by saying, "You got to know, you got to know, you got to know that when Jesus died, you died. Know it. You're dead. Do you get it? Do you know it?" And when it's like when his shadow boxing partner goes, okay, I get it. I get it in my head. I know that I'm dead. He says, all right, now that you know it, reckon it so. Okay, I reckon it so. No. He's saying, I want you to act on that. Make the deposit. I kind of hate admitting this, but about 20 years ago, it's about the time uh, my family and I moved down here. Uh, I'm working for a, a different church at that time, and, you know, Young married family, we're just living paycheck to paycheck. And uh, some of you can probably relate to this. We were at that season of life where every month it was the same deal. You didn't pay the bills until you got the paycheck for the month. This was before direct deposit. You got the paper check. You go to the bank. you, You deposit the check for the month. And then you write out all your checks for the bills and you put them in the mail. And it was the same routine every month. I did this every month. And on a particular month, did the normal routine, got my paycheck. Deposited it in the bank, went home, wrote all the checks, put them in the envelope, stamped them, sent them out in the mail, and life is good. Until about three days later, I came home from work, did the usual deal, checked the mail, and I was surprised to find there were seven envelope-looking things that were all identical. They look like the stuff you'll get from the IRS, you know, that it's not a regular envelope. It's got the little tear-off tabs on all sides. But strangely enough, they were all from my bank, I'm like, I've never seen these before. What's this about? Why would I get seven things from the bank? And I open the first one and nearly have a heart attack. It's the notice of insufficient funds. I'm like, what? And now I'm just tearing through one after the other. And they're all saying the same thing, but they're all for different checks. I have bounced in one day seven checks. And another one came the next day. I am just about to fall out. I'm like, how can this be? You're tagging me $30 for every one of these, not to mention all the fees that these other places are going to charge for bouncing all of these checks. How can this possibly happen? I got paid by the church. I deposited my check. I know that the money's there. How could this stuff all bounce? And I'm I'm trying to figure this out. I'm checking with my bank. The money's not there and now it's like this huge negative balance because of all this. And I'm like, what is going on? And I'm trying to rewind and figure out what could have possibly gone wrong. And then it happens. I stumble across my paycheck. I'm like, where did this come from? That's in the bank. I deposited that. Didn't I? I was so sure I had deposited it. Guess what? I forgot. I had done the work. I had collected the check. I was good for it. I had the resources to pay all of those bills. There was only one missing piece. I never deposited the check. The church was good for the money. They extended it to me. I did all the correct stuff to address my bills. I just missed one vital piece. I never deposited the check. In the language of Paul... I never reckoned myself paid. To reckon something so is to do more than to hold a check and say, I've got a check. See my check? Now see, this is the curious thing about checks. A check's just a piece of paper. It can just be that, right? I mean, how many times have you gotten a check for a million dollars from Publisher's Clearinghouse? We've all gotten that, right? I have never succeeded in cashing that sucker. It never works because you know it's bogus. And that's kind of the problem for us spiritually. We've heard a lot of different messages about what God has supplied for us. In a sense, all of those are kind of the checks from God for us. God saying, "This is what I've done for you. This is what this is the resource that I have supplied for you. This is available to you. Deposit it and use it." And some of those messages, a lot of them have been true, some of them are false. This is the really frustrating thing. There are guys right now preaching all across the country and very popularly on television who are promising you checks from God that haven't been written. Run away from anybody who promises you things from God that God himself didn't promise in his word. A lot of people are adding to the promises of God. And we we sort of learn by that to be skeptical. Yeah, well, I've been told this, but it's never really worked for me. So when we run across the promises of God, we're afraid to reckon them as true. We're afraid to make those deposits and live like they're true. And so what winds up happening for us is maybe we've heard the message, hey, Jesus died for our sins, and he died to sin for us, and we've died with him. That means you're now free from sin. And we tend to kind of go, yeah, yeah, I've heard that story before, blah, 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 blah. dead to sin, thank you very much. And then we run right past it until we run into that situation where we are so prone to go right back to our same old stuff, to be critical, to speak slander, to eat out of control to go right back into a relationship that we know is going to immediately lead to sexual acting out. Whatever it is, we get in that situation where we we know we're we're prone to run right back to that. And even though maybe in the back of our minds there's that thing of, you know what, You, you died with Christ and you're now dead to sin. But it's like, Yeah, I've heard that before, but that never really worked for me. And we go right back down the same path that we've lived on for so much of our lives. And to that, Paul says, hold on. If you know that you've died with Christ, you know you can't continue to live there, reckon yourselves as dead. Deposit the check. Let the reality of what Christ has done for you actually make a difference in your life. And it doesn't happen by you trying harder. How does it happen? How do I reckon the death of Jesus... To make a difference in my life so that I'm dead to sin just as he was. Well, part of it is knowing and declaring the truth. A beginning of reckoning is declaring. Declaring what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Say that with me. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. That's a huge declaration. Now that doesn't feel like it's got a lot of power the first time you say it, probably. That's a declaration we're going to have to make again and again. You know what? I've been crucified with Christ. So the old mark that that was eaten up with bad habits and, and bad attitudes has died. And Christ now lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm beginning to reckon it so, but there's two more words that we've got to understand and apply if I'm going to truly reckon this. And the next one is surrender. Which means simply to offer, to place yourself at another's disposal, to give yourself to someone. Now I want you to count in the passage that I put here how many times... This term is used just in this little passage. He says, Nor must you surrender any part of yourselves to sin to be used for wicked purposes. Instead, give yourselves to God and, yes, that... In Greek, it's the same word. So that's another surrender right there. Surrender yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And surrender your whole being to Him to be used for righteous purposes. Surely you know that when you surrender yourself as slaves to obey someone, you are in fact the slaves of the master you obey, either of sin, which results in death, or of obedience, which results in being put right with God. At one time, you surrendered yourself entirely as slaves to impurity and wickedness for wicked purposes. And in the same way, you must now surrender yourselves entirely as slaves of righteousness for holy purposes. How many did you come up with? Six in that one little passage. Surrender, surrender. Surrender. He says, understand, you started out surrendered. You just were surrendered to the wrong thing. You were surrendered to sin and the lifestyle that goes with it. You were the slave of that if you would surrender to God. You could be freed from slavery to sin, and you could belong completely to God. Now, listen, I get this, that this is an analogy that we hate in the 21st century, and with good reason. The concept of slavery is a wicked concept, and there are goofy people who try and say today, you see, that's one of the the things that's wrong with Christianity. The Bible itself endorses slavery in many places. No, it doesn't. The Bible never endorses slavery. The Bible simply recognizes the fact that slavery was going on, all around in the culture and the time in which it was written. And it, it addressed issues of how slaves would have to cope with having slave owners. And it would use that as an analogy, but it never endorsed the idea of slavery. Paul uses the analogy of slavery just to drive home a point, And I know we tend to push back from it because we abhor the idea of one person owning another, and we should. We should hate that. But don't miss the power of the analogy. And here's the thing that I want you to carry away from this. When he says, you were born the slaves of sin, it means nobody was born free. No one was born free. You're a slave to something. And if you're not owned by God, you're a slave to something else that controls you. Now, here's the thing that's the main point that Paul wants us to take away about slavery. And this part we can relate to and appreciate. We as Americans are quick to say, I'm free. We don't, we don't belong to anybody else. We are completely free. But as free people, we all want what? We all want a job, right? We want to be gainfully employed. And if you are thoroughly gainfully employed, what do you say you are? You say, well, I am a full-time employee of this person. But what do we really mean when we say we're sometime, somebody's full-time employee? How many hours a week are you usually giving that person? At least in theory. I'm going to give them 40 hours a week. I am going to work for you. Terry, if you hire me, I will be a full-time employee for you. I am yours, man. Full-time. 40 hours a week. You ever... Okay, maybe if I'm a hard worker, 50 or 60. But here's the thing that's kind of funny when you think about that. If I gave you 40 hours a week, you know how many that leaves for me? 128. But I'm yours full-time. Because I'm your full-time employee. The difference between being an employee and a slave is a slave always had to give his master 168 hours a week. He never had any time that was his own. All of his time belonged to his master. Every week. Every hour, every week. The problem for many Christians is we hate the idea of slavery. We like the idea of being employed. And so... We buy into much more of an employee relationship with God than we do a slave concept. Not, not a slave with a cruel master, but a slave who says, I get it, I don't get to keep back anything for myself, any time that's just mine. 168 hours a week, God, I belong to you. We are far more comfortable saying, God, I will happily sign on to work for you. Now, in that agreement... We're not going to say it this way, but we're thinking, when I do something for you, God, I expect to be paid. If I'm a good boy, I expect you to bless me. If I put a little something in that basket at the end of the service, God, I expect you to pay me back. I put something in that basket, I want you to give me tenfold back in my account somehow or other. You, you feel free to do that any way you want to. But you see, God, I'm your employee. I'm giving you my full-time energy, which in reality is only a fraction of my life, right? Right? A full-time employee actually keeps most of the week for themselves. Paul is driving home the point. A slave understands that he fully belongs 168 hours a week to someone else. And he's saying, understand this. You weren't a -a 40-hour-a-week slave to sin. You were a -a 168-hour-a-week slave to sin. Jesus died so that you could be free from that. But here's the thing that's so counterintuitive. The key to being free is surrender. The key to victory is surrender. You can't get free from sin unless you surrender everything to God. In Romans 12, Paul goes on to say, So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. Offer yourselves, surrender yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to His service, and pleasing to Him. This is a a day-by-day and moment-by-moment thing that it's, for the rest of your life, it's choosing to say, Jesus, I'm yours. I surrender to you. I surrender to your agenda. Whatever I have planned, God, it's always secondary to you. Because day and night, all the time, I belong to you. And that brings us to the final word. In living out this idea of reckoning. And that is obey. Which means simply to fulfill or carry out the instructions of another. Or to completely to comply with the wishes of another. In uh, ch- chapter 6 verses 17 and 18 he says, Thank God once you were slaves of sin. But now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching that we have given you. And now you're free from your slavery to sin. And you have become slaves to righteous living. Obedience is the acting out of a life of surrender. And the thing that is easy to to miss in this is when we come to God and we ask for forgiveness of our sins and we get saved, I think a lot of times we think of it as, okay, this is dealing with my past stuff. And now I've got to be a good boy, a good girl for God. And so all of this stuff out here that's been my bad habits and thoughts and attitudes and, and junk that's in my life that's been out of control, well, I'm a Christian now, so I've got to get those things under control, right? I've got to be a good Christian because you can't have any of these things popping up when you go to church. The the world would see that you're a pagan. If you come in here cursing like a sailor and and, and dressing like a streetwalker and, and, you know, just in every way letting all of your your stuff show, it's like, oh, that's not going to look very Christian on a, on a Sunday morning. So I've got to reel those things in, right? Now, reality is, as you go through life, some of that stuff has a way of popping back up, right? It's like, oh, goodness, I thought I had that under control. Jesus, could you come in and help me? Because I'm, I'm trying to live a good Christian life. But you see, there's just all this stuff on the Internet, and sometimes late at night, you know, you get lonely and it, it gets tempting. And, and that, that uh, just, you know, you turn on the computer and, and issues uh, seem to surface. And so, Jesus, could you come help me with this, this problem with lust? Would you reel that in for me? Or, or, oh, goodness, there's that issue with my temper and my tongue again. Jesus, if you could just come and deal with that. If you could just get that under control, I'll handle the rest of this. And here's the thing. You don't get to selectively... Call on God to fix the individual things that you want fixed. It never works. It does not work that way. I hear people all the time, this is like our favorite safe pet Christian thing to say. I'll pray for patience. Because I'm such an impatient person. Patience is not a commodity to be taken from from the hands of God, just as chastity or any of the other virtues or not. You see, we want to run to God oftentimes acting like, I've got it all, everything else under control, God. If you could just fix this one thing, because you see, God, I, I'm, I'm really crying out to you because this is causing a problem in my marriage. I'm crying out to you, God, because I'm feeling the, the pain of, of always being in a bind financially, and I need you to help me in this one area. That's like going on a diet or starting to exercise because you want to lose weight in one particular part of your body. You know, it's, it's saying, I, I've just got this, and I've got it, you know, I've got this extra thing right here that I want to get rid of, so, you know, I want to work out, but I only want to work out this much. I don't want to have to work anything here or here. I just want to work out right here and get rid of of that flab. So, Mr. Trainer, could you come in and fix this? Could you give me a diet that just takes care of this? But I want to eat well here and here, and I only want to exercise hard here. It doesn't work, does it? There's no such thing as a specific area of the body that you get to target fat loss. And morally, the same thing is true. You don't get to go to God to get His help To fix one part of your life. And that's all that you're really taking to him. While we're over here going. God I've got everything else under control. If you could just help me you know, deal with my my attitude. Or or my tongue. or, Or my thought life. That's the only thing that's out of control over here. God if you could just handle that one for me. God says I don't do business that way. I deal with sin by killing the sinner. And that's a once for all deal. And so if you want any help, here's the only way to get help. You've got to quit trying to fix it yourself and just let go. And it's like, let go. I'm going to go back to living like this. And I'm a scary person when I live like this, where all of my attitudes and habits are just out there. Well, here's the deal. God's good at dealing with all of those when we give Him all of those. Because He already knows. He killed that person. And what you find over time... As you surrender all of that to him, and you begin to obey what he says, they begin to lose their power. And they begin to die. Not because you're uh, flexing all of your spiritual muscles to make this one thing that's driving you crazy go away. But where you surrender everything to him, and over time, you realize those things are losing their power. I'm no longer a slave to those things. But the kicker is this. If you're truly reckoning yourself as dead and you're surrendering everything to him, obedience is... In all things, and, and the reason that that can throw us off is if you're feeling like, man, the place where I need help, God, is in my marriage. I don't know why that woman just can't get it through her head how to think straight and act straight. She drives me crazy. God, would you just fix my wife? Would you fix my marriage? Would you fix my attitude toward my spouse? Or whatever your thing is. And we just want help in this one area. And yet the Spirit of God keeps reminding us of the last thing that He said that we needed to address. And we're like, God, I... What does tithing have to do with my relationship with my wife? I'm not interested in tithing right now. Quit bringing that up to me. I want you to fix my marriage. God, stop talking to me about serving in this way. Stop talking to me about giving to me the need or serving in the church. What I want, God, is for you to help me get control over my tongue or get control over lustful thoughts or inappropriate relationships. Stop talking to me about this, God, and here's the deal. It is a willingness to be obedient to whatever God is saying, big or small, and no matter how irrelevant it may seem to the issue that's driving you crazy, it is the heart that says, God, I'm yours 168 hours a week, and whatever you put your finger on and say, I want to deal with this right now, it's the heart that says, God, if you say that needs to change, my answer is just yes. That's the heart. That belongs to God. That's the heart that is surrendered. And that's the heart that begins to live out the reality that I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. I've died with Christ and a new man has been raised up. Surrender and obedience are the reckoning of putting to death of the old man. And seeing a new man or woman raised to life surrender, and obedience. I want to close just asking you to think of two or three real straightforward things. What is it that has plagued you the most and the longest? If there's one thing that you could put your finger on and say, oh, I would wish to be free from that. What is that? You don't get to selectively remove that. It comes by total surrender, and that's the second question. Are you at a place right now that every part of your life, every hour of your week, it belongs to Jesus. And the final question is about the word obey. Is there anything in your life, anything that God's Spirit has impressed on you or that He's spoken to you from His Word that you realize, boy, God's been telling me to do this and I just haven't been obedient? Which is just a tangible reminder of I haven't fully surrendered. And would you be willing to say yes to what God has most recently said to you? Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer right now? Father, we thank you for all that we have in Christ. And we thank you for that incredible truth that the progress that we make spiritually isn't because we tried harder. That it all begins with a new sitting down with Christ and in a position of rest being seated with Christ in the heavenlies that you then empower us to walk worthy of him in the world thank you Lord Jesus that you have died for us and that you have caused us to die with you so that just as you were raised from the dead we can be raised to walk with a new life God you know the reality of the things that we struggle with you know the places that that overwhelm us and keep us in a place of frustration and defeat. We agree with the truth of your word that, that we need to present all that we are and all that we have to you. We need to be fully obedient to you. I pray that today, not because we have to, but because we realize that we are loved and out of a response of love and gratitude, that we would give ourselves completely to you. And we pray, God, that you administer freedom and release, forgiveness, And true freedom from the power of sin in this place today. Holy Spirit, would you make that happen in our lives. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.